trying not to breathe. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. <laughs> no, breathing yeah. is fine now. <laughs> <laughs> one last breath before, before we start the recording. Before I say everything in one single breath. <laughs> and I have lost my PowerPoint. Where is my PowerPoint? This is the intro. I cannot remember what I'm talking about. Okay. Um... I'm just forcing it now. <laughs> Hello and welcome Hello. to another episode of the Plants and Pipettes podcast. See, I already did like my one deliverable of the day, remembering the name, of the, the name podcast. of the podcast. I didn't do my deliverable of remembering to turn my phone on to silence. So, okay, that is done. And goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It's been a nice one. All right, what's happening? Um, what's what? I I don't know. Um, I I took an electric scooter here for the first time. They just hit Berlin. I think for the all our US listeners, it's pretty like old stuff. But for us Berliners, it's exciting times because suddenly, you're, <laughs> if you're a pedestrian, you start dodging the scooters. I think scooters. it became legal like nine days ago or seven yeah. days ago or something like something that. Something like that. And either you're dodging them or you're the one that forces people to jump out of the way. And now there's like already three or four different brands on the market like with competing apps that you can... And two serious accidents already. No, really? Yes. Like on one day, there were like two people who got hurt badly because they ran into traffic because they didn't pay attention. Okay, but not... Nothing, I mean, no, no... Dead. I would definitely play bumper scooters with some, somebody. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> who wants to play bumper scooters? Okay, yeah. but serious. Okay, that's a bit shitty. Yeah, it's just like the... Uh, Berlin is just not ready for this. Like, I think we, it's one of these culture techniques that we just have to learn now. I how mean, to deal with electrified scooters. No, Berlin is absolutely ready. We are the, the modern city of the modern world. Everything here <laughs> works perfectly, as yes. you all know. I mean, we're in Germany. Everything just runs smoothly. The internet does not stop working the second you go one meter outside of the city center. <laughs> yes. uh, I always have phone signal. What else? Yeah, Wi-Fi is free and publicly available. The um, public transport is reliable and uh, reaches everything. Okay, see, I don't agree with that because I think your public transport actually is reliable. No. Like, you just have to leave Berlin for a while and realize, like, actually, okay, here it's it's quite good. Okay, yeah. This has now become a podcast about us bitching about the things that are wrong with Berlin. No, I I, I love Berlin. I like, love Berlin. Every time somebody attacks Berlin, I get very angry, like <laughs> irrationally angry. Like I'm 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 by far not a patriot, but if somebody this is Berlin, I lose all sense of irony and sarcasm. I'm just like I'm <laughs> going to rage mode. It's like, what are you saying about Berlin? Okay, enough enough about our favorite city, the best city of the world. Let's talk some plants. And for that, I have something. It's the paper of the week. It's the paper of the week. Very it's soft. The paper of the yeah, it's it's uh, it's silent. Oh, it sounds sleepy though. It's I want this book to be more upbeat next week. time. No. It's the paper <laughs> I did it this morning, and that was my mood. <laughs> All right, we should give Yarm a lot of caffeine and then let him re-record it. I mean, maybe just put it double times, like, it's the paper of the week, it's the paper of the week. It's the paper of the week, the paper of the week, it's the paper of... That actually segues nicely onto the paper of the week, though, because 
It sounds like you're sleepy and sometimes you get sleepy when you don't have enough oxygen. And my paper this week is about a hypoxic niche in the shoot apical meristem. So the title is called An Apical Hypoxic Niche Sets the Pace of the Shoot Meristem Activity. The first author on this is Dan Waite um, and he is at the Institute of Life Sciences in the Scuola Superiore in Pisa, Italy, but he's also associated, I think, with Aachen University. And the corresponding author is Francesco Lekowski. It was in Nature Letters and it came out in May this year. Okay, let's begin. What is the shoot apicomaristem? Yaram. It's the um, early develop developmental... Um like it, no, it's a, the part where the plant grows out of essentially. Like it's at the in the, in the stem, and um, it's the part where you find. Do you find stem cells there? Like that can specialize. It's definitely the thing that you need to graft onto new plants if you want to have a new shoot there. You can also graft like plants on plants, like just chop them at the stem. Like this is kind of. But you, don't you need like the part with the shoot apicomeristem? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm terrible <laughs> at this. This shoot apicomeristem is one of the words that I've seen in so many presentations and never dare to really ask someone to explain. Exactly I think it's kind of hard it to explain. It's basically, it is this kind of like small bud-like structure from which all of the above ground organs come. So it has this kind of stem cell-like um, properties in the center of the bud and everything gradually differentiates and becomes the leaves. And later in life, you get this like floral transition and you get like everything coming. So everything above ground is coming from the shoot apical meristem and below ground, you have this like similar root apical meristem, which we talked about in, I think, a recent paper we discuss mm. this kind of quiescent center linked to this meristematic area which again like everything is differentiating from that and making different stem cells but uh, different cell types from these kind of stem yeah, cell like yeah. oh yeah and the, and the root article that we just published um <laughs> for, uh, uh, last week judging from <laughs> when this re episode will be released oh my Okay, so it's basically the shoot apical meristem is a small dome-shaped kind of cluster with, again, these stem cell-like um, cells in the center of it. And kind of on the edges, the, the outside of the dome, like kind of if you go down to the bottom and the edges, you have these like whorl bits which become like the leaves. So this is where the leaves are coming out. Um, and as you get further kind of away, you get like more mature leaves as you go out. Um, and how, like where the walls, where, where the new leaves basically come out of, we know quite a lot about how that works. There's a lot of involvement of the plant hormone auxin, which I think even the non-scientist probably has heard about auxin from their time doing like biology 101 back in school. It's just a, a plant hormone which has a lot of influence on all aspects of plant um, growth. Personally, it's also one of my rules with life to never ever work with auxin because I think <laughs> oh, this hormonal shit just like stresses me out because it's, it's so involved in so many different processes um, <laughs> and it's, it's usually very complicated stuff. Whenever it's in a, st in a study, they have to consider so many different things. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, when you have these hormones, you also need, like, really small amounts of them. So you have these, like, gradients that play. I don't know, it just seems... It yeah. seems unbearably tricky for for me. I'm, I'm a gene expression person, but I like the downstream stuff, like after all that signaling has happened when you actually have like... Yeah, and I like proteins that are <laughs> even further downstream where I just like, I, I can follow a protein and it interacts with something and I can see it on a mass spec, but that's about it. Like, it might be part of some network, but it's, it's fairly well observable. <laughs> anyway... Even though Yoram and I have a desire never to work with auxin, many people have been working with auxin for many years and also with the shoot apical meristem. And basically now we have a fairly good idea about what causes... Whoa, gesundheit. 
what causes um, the spatial separation of where the developing organs and the stem cells are and what happens then when you get like this gradient towards the edge. So spatially, we know what happens, right? But temporally, we don't know what happens. So we know that over here and over here on the edges, we're going to get leaves happening, like coming developing, but we don't know what defines at which rate they come out. And this is obviously pretty important for the plant because depending on like what resources it has, and what it needs to do and like the growing season, if it needs to get stuff done before winter, it has to control how quickly it makes this above ground material, right? So there's been this kind of question of what defines the timing of the development um, from the shoot apical meristem and thus what defines the plant growth timing. And there's been like a few studies already which kind of have suggested a number of genes and network which might be involved in defining this timing. But this group was looking specifically at oxygen um, and partially because they're an oxygen-based group, so this is kind of their their main interest of um, the people As involved. As opposed to like other carbon-based forms <laughs> of living. Okay, I think, yeah, so there's some overlap with their research interests and um, yeah. this study, obviously. Um, but oxygen is a bit interesting because like, as we know, oxygen can be highly reactive, which means that it can kind of bump into other things and change the, the chemical properties of the other things just by being there. And often it can change them in a kind of bad way so it can screw things up. Um, but it's also obviously relevant because it is coming from metabolism. So it's can also it's there all the time. And also it can tell you about the kind of status of like photosynthesis and like cellular metabolism, maybe based on how much oxygen is being produced and also the, the situation of whether the plant is stressed. So it can be kind of a useful like signal for how the state of the plant and also for being a signal. Um, it is also highly diffusible. So it can kind of move from yeah. one place to another. It's like a small molecule. It can get through all the, the membranes and it can just move place to place, which is kind of what you want in a signal, right? It can go yeah. from A to B and be like, hey, something's happening over here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this group looked at what oxygen might be doing in the shoot apical meristem. Is the one question, is the, is the tissue already photosynthetically active? Mm. Because that involves oxygen. That involves like the release of oxygen and yeah, being, so it being a, um, a signal pro uh, molecule, I would think it might be, like, it might have an effect, but it's it's not active, right? Uh, well, it's, there's a really good paper from, like, I don't know, maybe five years ago, um, Havudi et al, I think I've said that name wrong, but it's a plant cell paper, and it looks at how the shoot apical meristem is set up, and people always believed that the shoot apical meristem was basically filled with proplastids, which is chloroplast before they become chloroplast so non-photosynthetically active chloroplast and in this study they found that actually in different places of the shoot meristem there were chloroplasts well semi-developed chloroplasts so there were pl plastids which had some membranes like some mm. photosynthetic membranes and then actually later on they even lost the membranes again so it was this very complex interplay so it's not necessarily completely unphotosynthetic there is some potential but on the other hand it's also kind of closed in i mean you have these other leaf buds often which are, are covering it in many species so it's probably not the most photosynthetic but yeah, yeah. it's not kind of a, a cut and dry it's it's not ready yet kind of situation yeah okay so nobody basically looked at the situation of what's happening with oxygen in the shoot apical meristem before and that's basically because it's a very very small thing so it's just tens of cells in arabidopsis which you can imagine it's quite hard to measure anything from these these tens of cells um and of course like not only is it very tiny but as we just said it's also protected by all of the the leaves like the, the growing yeah, yeah. developing leaves around it so you can kind of imagine like the bud of a rose this kind of situation where it's quite hard to actually get into the shoot apical meristem and measure anything without disrupting the native 
mm. like like once you try and get in there you're already going to screw up how it is normally so if you want to yeah. measure like what the oxygen's like in there if you're breaking everything and letting oxygen in there it's it's not so yeah it's it's almost like in physics and particle physics right, where the observation changes the outcome i think in any science there's this general idea that like you can't observe something like yeah. in a purely neutral way right yeah um, so this group used a microscale oxygen electrode, um, which is a special new instrument which literally allows them to measure oxygen at the micrometer level. So very, very tiny, yeah. like... Yeah, I just try to imagine what it looks like and how to ma manipulate it, but yeah. Well, I think... So the reason I did this paper is because I heard a talk from one of the authors, um, Jost van Dongen, a couple of weeks ago, and he was mentioning that even with like this very small instrument and very like steady hands they would still go through quite a few like it was <laughs> it was a tricky thing to master and even then you would damage quite a few of them and then once you've damaged them i mean you know already like experience from trying to emasculate yeah like arabidopsis so trying to cut the pollen off arabidopsis to like like cross yeah. it with another thing it's you yeah. do all this really delicate work and at the last minute you yeah you just break it off and it's okay another yeah. one another one you start peeling again Yeah. Anyway, after a lot of what I assume is a lot of very, very hard work from the group members, they noticed that there was a very sharp decrease in the amount of oxygen at the center of this shoot apex. So the SAM is basically sitting in a hypoxic niche, which means it's sitting in an area with, with less oxygen than all the rest of the plant is seeing. Of course, they have to check that this is actually true, especially because they're using this kind of new instrument, which is not so like... Yeah. Yeah. You, you it could be a me mistaken measurement because it's a new, but they control for that then. Yeah, so then they looked at some um, transcript data and they found that they have already a set of genes that they know are induced by hypoxia, like in normal tissues. And they found that about 55% of them were significantly higher expressed in the shoot apical meristem than in other tissues. So there seems to be like a hypoxic response kind of generally happening in this tissue. They also used an artificial um, promoter, which is taken from a gene that actually is one of these hypoxic responsive genes and they put it in front of a visible marker in this case they just use something called gus which just basically um it stains blue once yeah. it's a protein yeah. that stains blue once it's expressed a very so, common reporter system yeah so with that then they had a sort of a, a sensor like a, a molecular sensor for low oxygen right inside the plant yeah, yeah. so then they, they had a look at that and they saw yep it was blue in the center and it wasn't blue once you went yeah like further afield and then they also checked that like both the gus was working and their instrument was working by growing the plants under 80 percent oxygen so under like new conditions so normally the oxygen in the air is like um um 20 <laughs> exactly so they're like now growing it under 80 and of course you expect then this hypoxic niche would become less hypoxic and that's exactly what they saw so they saw like less of this gus and they got less of the um response the the genes which were overexpressed were not so so high all of these kind of things and on top of this they also checked it in a different species in tomato to see if this is like a general thing of the shoot apical meristem that it's in this hypoxic niche and it seems to be also the case and this is actually something which is quite cool it's getting more and more common these days like it used to be that you would just look in arabidopsis but now people are like hey we should also check in a non-brassicaceae species there's lots of things which are like just specific for one yeah one group um and also especially checking it in a in a crop like so yep. tomato at least has like a valuable plant and the other thing about tomatoes actually has also a, a shoot apical meristem that's a little bit larger so maybe yeah. it was like kind of a a nice like oh my goodness after like <laughs> thousands of these tiny little things like oh okay something just like 
poke in there and still hit it because it's large enough target. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so when they were doing these checks, especially with the 80%, they noticed an extra thing, which was very helpful, was that once you start flooding this, this hypoxic niche with oxygen, making it less hypoxic, the growth of the leaves coming out is much slower. Oh. So that suggests that when you have hypoxia, it actually helps the leaves come out with a regular like fast timing. And then once the, the hypoxic niche is gone, once there's too much oxygen, it's like, eh, 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 stop. And okay. this is also good because you could also say that like growth is limited. If it was the other way around, you could say, hey, the growth is not limited because of any signaling. It's limited because organisms need oxygen to grow. So if you don't have oxygen, like, yeah. of course it grows slower, but here it's actually the reverse, which really suggests like it's it's a signal happening or it's like kind of a deliberate thing. And I'm saying this yeah. in like, you can't see Quote my little air, air yeah, quotes because I mean, yeah, it's a plant, but it's it's not just like a, a metabolic response to like. But is it then something? Did they check ROS then? So reactive oxygen species, which always happens when you deal with oxygen, and which is quite damaging. So are it, are they just stressed out of their mind, and that's why they slowed out, slowed down? So this is not something that came up so much here, but it's discussed kind of in the um, the end of the paper as the conclusions and the kind of further look. So, mm-hmm. um, they. They then looked at like how this oxygen might actually be slowing down the growth. So you can say like the oxygen is a signal to say, hey, slow down growth or the lack of oxygen is a signal to say, keep the growth going. But oxygen itself can't make these changes happening. What you need is like some genes to be activated and some like- So you need something to just like sense the oxygen state and translate that into a gene response. So like classically it would be a transcription factor that is sensitive to to oxygen. Exactly, yeah. So they got interested in something called little zipper two. Um, and it's a protein that they already knew was highly expressed in the shoot apical meristem and it's also known to be involved in shoot apical meristem activity so downstream it um, controls it in fact controls many other transcription factors which then um, like influence a whole range of roles involved in shoot apical meristem growth Um, but one of the reasons that they they looked at this one is because they thought that little zipper 2 might be a protein that could be target of a protein degradation pathway that requires oxygen Ah, uh, I always <laughs> love it when it gets to that stage when yeah. you have like several, it's sort of like a double and triple negative. And this is why I stay away from oxen because then it becomes <laughs> like oxen like is negatively impacting this, is positively impacting this and blah, 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 blah. And the, uh, signaling cascade. <laughs> okay. um, but basically this is a pathway, it's called the endegron pathway. It's just um, a branch of that pathway actually that depends on oxygen. Um, and there's several different steps, but basically protein degradation depends on the identity of the... Um, the amino acids at the end terminus of the protein but in order for the degradation to actually happen you need oxygen to be involved at one of the there's like three or four steps that happen so if the oxygen is there theoretically a little zipper should get degraded and shouldn't be able to work on its transcription factors um, and of course, they they actually checked that this was something that could be happened. So they did like a whole lot of biochemical assays and immuno um, blotting. They they made this little zipper attached to a GFP to see how it accumulates in hypoxia and also when you like flood the shoot apical meristem with oxygen. They also changed this end terminus part of the little zipper, which is what is necessary to make it be degraded by this endegron pathway. Mm, yeah, so um, it can't be degraded anymore. They basically made put like an amino acid that's more stable in there and then they found, okay, it doesn't get degraded even when the, the oxygen is, is there. Um, and they also looked to see if the little zipper was involved in being degraded by this pathway by disrupting the, the actual degradation pathway. And then they also found that little zipper hung around for longer. Yeah. So they did it like 
really many different tests to check that little zipper could be degraded by this pathway and that this pathway was also dependent on the presence or absence of oxygen. Um, yeah, so they did even more work on little zipper itself. So again, they made these Gus um, mutants. They found where it was localized. It was found to be exactly at the center of the shoot apical meristem. When they increased the oxygen, they lost this um, hypoxic niche and then lost the special expression of little zipper because the oxygen was allowed it to be degraded. They also got mutants like knockout TDNA insertion lines, which my computer kept on auto-correcting to tuna insertion lines, so I think we just say that. <laughs> they got tuna insertion lines with a little zipper. Um, <laughs> and perhaps most importantly, um, they could see a lower rate of leaf initiation in the insertion lines, which is suggesting that you need the little zipper around to get this rapid leaf initiation, which kind of all fits in with their idea mm -hmm. um, of the story. Oh, and they also did some interaction studies to confirm that the little zipper... I mean, it's really a hell of a lot of work that they've what, done. What because paper was that? What journal was that in? Is that Nature Letters, it came Nature out. Letters. It's, so it's like it a, sounds like a plant cell paper from it's, the I mean, it's like it. a two-page paper, but like each sentence is just packed with like... We then tested this, and it's like one sentence, but there's like so much... Like as a scientist, you know it's like six months' work, or like yeah. it's just yeah. such incredible detail. Um. Yeah, so basically this was all of the work, but in the end they, they have a story where you have this special hypoxic niece in the shoot apical meristem and this hypoxia is needed to allow the normal timing, the rapid timing of the plant leaves coming out and you can control how rapidly they come out by changing the amount of oxygen and this all depends on little zipper and his downstream interaction with transcription factors. So they kind of made a nice story with a mechanism um, as some of the earlier research in the field, I think it's it's a super yeah, cool yeah. end. As I said, incredibly dense read um, <laughs> as a paper. And kind of coming back to what you were saying, um, one of the things that I think is is kind of interesting is you often don't think about oxygen limitation when it comes to plants because, I mean, they make oxygen via photosynthesis. So I found it kind of cool to be looking into this, this topic yeah, yeah. at all. Like, I mean, there's some other work by the, the authors on this paper, which also is, is quite like an interesting... It's a bit of like a... a a thought process in the brain like i mean the idea of in the middle of an apple the cells in the center of an apple because an apple is very dense they also have this like depletion of oxygen yeah and how does that impact their ability to grow like these kind of questions yeah. which as a plant scientist i i don't yeah. think of that so much yeah we think of of like very basic and and understandable systems with like with leaves we often don't think about like thickness sometimes we think about leaf thickness but not really too fully what it uh, entails to and i always like it when they start just like modeling these things when they just there was this paper a while ago um where it was about i think we i don't know if we ever published a story but it was about this like mrna um transport through the the, the cell where the the theory says that there's like some mrnas that are mobile going from like the the root to the shoot um, mm. and uh, against some gradients and so on to as a signaling thing it's and on the blog it's called mrna going the long distance i think yeah, I don't... Did we ever... I think we put it on the blog okay. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I think it was one of the first things that we published. But they also, the, the main part there in one of the works was um, just a model, just looking at how, like, the di dimensions of it, like, the physics, like, how, if an mRNA hangs around somewhere and how far far is it away from a cell wall and what are the chances of leaving that cell and, like, just these this dimensions This was, yeah, a follow-up paper on that work. So there was an original article and there was a follow-up by a different groups trying to work out. Yeah how how these mrna get out yeah and like, exactly yeah. and it's 
to me, I always think of like naively of many processes, like you see them on a piece of paper, like this sort of two dimensional thing that has no depth. And you have just like this cascade, like an electron transport chain that's pretty like straight, like from one end to the other end. But it's not in reality. Like you have all these like effects, like depth and density and other tissues around it. And so, yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool to think about that. Yeah, and so I mean, as I said, we don't we don't tend to think about like hypoxia as something that could be a problem for plant tissue, but of course it is. Other examples are like seedlings when they're first underground and they're trying to like get out of the this compact soil. Um, in many fruits, as I said, so when um, like the like grapes or apples when they go through this like rapid growth, but they're like very densely packed, or like buds in in like leaf buds or also flower buds, it's all. This is all actually something that does happen a lot. Yeah. But what's interesting about those ones is usually we think of the oxygen as being something that's very limiting in that case. So like oxygen is limiting and therefore growth is limited and there's like growth is fighting. But this paper actually looks at on the other kind of yeah. side where like limited oxygen is important. And the authors raise the fact that even though plants and animals and especially multicellular plants and animals are super different. So the plant and animal lineage split long before multicellularity became a thing. And therefore, long before this tissues having not enough oxygen because they're in the center of a big organism became a big thing. But interestingly enough, like the bone marrow of humans, which is also our stem cells, um, is also stuck right in the inside. It's also in this like hypoxic niche. And the author is suggesting that maybe this is because of protection. So as Yoram said earlier in, in the show, like oxygen can really damage things. It can cause DNA mutations and especially at the early stage of development. If you're the shoot apical meristem and from you every single thing can come, you don't want to screw up the DNA at that stage because then everything yeah. that comes out of you will have screwed up DNA. Yeah. So yeah. If some like leaf cell mutates, um, it doesn't really matter. Like worst case, you lose a leaf. But if the stem cells mutate, the entire plant might die from, from that defect. So yeah. Yeah. So maybe having this hypoxic niche is really protecting from the horrible, horrible damage that this mean old oxygen can do. And again, as we know, like plants originally began their development in like an environment with much less oxygen and then they made the oxygen. They kind of screwed yeah. themselves in some way by yeah. producing all of this excess, like damaging oxygen, which. Yeah. 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 So yeah, uh, just as a reminder, this is called an apical hypoxic niche sets the pace of shoot meristem activity by Waits et al. And it came out in Nature Letters in May. So go and check out the original article. Yeah, cool. Straight up to the next bin. Uh, My favorite plant. Where is it? Ah, I reordered my slides and now it's like somewhere in the middle is now my favorite plant. Yeah. I feel like we need to work on our segues a bit, Yoram. I know. I think it's... Uh, how how do you segue away from such an amazing story? Everything <laughs> else is just like worse than that. Uh -huh. Apart from my plant, which is amazing. <laughs> it's actually something I wonder if you know it. Do you know Stylidium graminifolium? Hmm? Stylidium graminifolium. No. It's an Australian plant. That's why mm. I'm asking. It has grass-like leaves. It's quite easy to cultivate. It has these... I find them almost like higher thin, like um, pinkish flowers. Maybe you know the, the name grass trigger plant. I do not. Oh, then um, it's, a, it's a plant. It has like 
the less interesting fact about it is that it has like some spikes on it um, that that make people think it might be carnivorous or proto carnivorous. So it's not shown that it's actually carnivorous. What's proto carnivorous? Potentially able to be carnivorous, okay, but it might but not be doing it currently. It, yeah. It might, or it might have lost it, or it might like be an intermediate step in the evolution of that ability. But what the reason I chose this is this plant punches insects to cover them in pollen. <laughs> it has that's why it's called a grass trigger plant. It has on. Yeah. Oh my god, I've heard of this. It's the one. Is it the one that like attacks the bees so aggressively that then they don't come back to the same flower? They go really far away. I is it this one? I didn't see that written down somewhere. I just saw videos of the thing. Like the, we we link it. It's like two videos on Twitter. One of them is like slow motion. Um, wait, I, I I can I send it to you and then you can look at the the video and then have your live reaction on here Tegan reacts <laughs> too and a regular speed video to show like how how quick that is so I can in the, in the meantime I can just say what this plant does is like if a pollinator lands on the flower there's a sensitive trigger and it makes like a little tube like snap out and snap out and hit the pollinator and um, sort of punch the pollen onto the pollinator and it might very well be that it's to to make sure that it then will move on to a different plant to spread the pollen um, i didn't find that written down in the articles that i read about this yeah i i think the one i heard it was actually an orchid species and i heard it as a way of like really like traumatizing the bee and making sure that it didn't come That's yeah the thing. okay i'm watching the video they're poking there's some maybe some scientists or people poking with a stick okay. yeah poking with a stick Ciao. and it just like flaps around and in slow motion you see like the pollen flying away and like it really covers us and there's in, in, in the other video it's in, in regular speed and there you see this just like snap like again they're poking it with like a little stick um actually oh, wait, they, I'm watching the slow motion one now And then you have sort of like this spring-loaded arm underneath the flower, and it sort of turned, does a one eighty degree turn and hits Whoa, wh what's ever like, in the flower. Yeah, it's like it's behind the flower, and it's like you have one hand behind your back, and then you swing the full like yeah, all like the way around, like yeah. Ooh, very cool. Yeah, I couldn't find like in the research that I did, I didn't find a good explanation for why it does that, apart from like a very efficient pollen transfer to the pollinator, because yeah. it just gets like smacked in the face with some pollen. And then yeah, making it bugger off. Like yeah, a lot of plants don't want to be self-pollinated; they want to send their pollen as far as away as they can. So this would be good incentive. Like. And maybe it's also more efficient on the nectar. Like the the insect can't drink as much because it's like it gets hit and then flies away because it's it's sort of but you don't alarmed. want to traumatize the animal the the yeah whatever the pollinator is so much that it never comes back to that type yeah. of flower again right you want to still have like yeah some reward or yeah just like a little bit of a reward so it's like that it's still willing to come back for that sweet nectar <laughs> but not drinking the entire cup of it just like taking a sip being like ah oh, this is really nice and smacked in the face with some pollen and it flies off all right we'll put the the links in the show notes guys yes. so you can check you out i think the slow motion videos. is definitely the most impressive yeah it's 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 really cool i, I really like that um yeah so that's my my favorite plant of the week and now we move on to the next segment Ooh. I have so many jingles now. This 
Did I say this is where the facts begin or this is where the fun begins? Where the fun begins. Ah, okay. I like the industrial sound too. Like it doesn't sound really fun. That's why I like it. Speaking of fun, I want to talk today about collective narcissism, which has nothing to do with plants. <laughs> Instagram. Um, <laughs> it was yeah, maybe that was actually the the point. I was originally reading um, an article on the Conversation, I think on the Australian or the UK edition of the Conversation, which was called "Welcome to the Age of Collective Narcissism." It's quite an old thing. It's from 2017, so I honestly don't even know how I came across this. Um, but yeah, it was basically trying to correlate the the intent to vote and who people vote for based on their own okay. narcissism, but like not individual, but like as a group of people. Okay. So there's some some questions that you can ask people. I think they did the study in in Poland, in the US and the UK, or something like this. Um, no, maybe the poll. Anyway, um, it comes from original study, and this was just a kind of a popular science article on it. But I kind of liked the the question, so you can discuss whether you think you're belonging you're more likely to be a narcissistic person based on these questions um my group deserves special treatment i wish others would more quickly recognize the authority of my group um i insist upon my group getting the respect that is due to it it really makes me angry when others criticize my group things like this yeah i i think now fun ways to define my group i think my my first definition would be cat owners no, I think it's more about like... <laughs> if people make fun of cat owners, I get really annoyed. I think it would more be like white, male, German, heterosexual. Like, like I think it's... But I yeah. mean, generally, they're talking about voting blocks here, I think. Or they're trying to correlate this narcissism with the tendency to vote for populist parties. The only thing I had was I was trying to... When I was reading the scale, and maybe it was just because of stuff I had been thinking of recently. I, I want you guys to tell me what you think. I was wondering if... It would also be applicable, many of these questions, for minority groups, which are actually actively being persecuted. So, like, the true worth of my group is often misunderstood. True for many minorities. Like, yeah, not many people seem to fully understand the importance of my group. Yeah. True. I insist upon my group getting the respect that it is due to it. Should be true. Like, I mean, and... Yeah, maybe in this case, the narcissistic element of it is not meant as negative as we often understand it. Mm. Probably in in this context, narcissistic might mean something like less negative. I That's the only way I could imagine how, how this is okay, because otherwise I, fu- I fully agree. It puts them in like a very bad light for caring for their issues and caring for their rights. No, no, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to put it as a negative thing for any minorities. I was saying like, I wonder if... Yeah, I wonder if these these que- like how would you answer these questions? Like, if I'm if I'm somebody who's actually getting shitty treatment, wouldn't I answer that I will never be satisfied until my group gets the recognition it deserves? Like, yeah, but isn't it's okay is, then to answer like this, right? If if or is then if you answer yes to all of these questions, then it says then like, you're more likely to be a na- if you totally agree, you're more likely to be a narcissist, which means you're more likely to be populist. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, has I'm, some shortcomings. I should notice that, that I'm, I'm paraphrasing the the research in a very like terrible yeah, way because I was yeah. just like reading a lot on this, but I was I, I was just kind of interested about this. Like maybe yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was completely <laughs> unrelated to science and something I want you guys to tell me about. You can go and check out the Welcome to the Age of Narcissism. Yeah, and there's an original um, article by Golekta Zavala et al. in 2009. Um, yeah. I'm okay. interested in this. Narcissism. No, I, I, I can't spell it. Um. <laughs> I, like, 
because I've seen this response, especially um, on on like social media and stuff where people are saying, hey, please pay attention to me. Please listen to me. Like you need to like take into account the feelings of my special group. But often that's because those people have been largely ignored and maltreated by the population. And this is the only chance that they get to have a voice. But then the response from the mainstream is often shut up. It's not like, we don't care. Why are you always whinging? Why do you always think you deserve special treatment? It's like, no, because there's a legitimate reason for this, like crying out to try and get a voice but yeah and then also to <laughs> to label that then a populist no um, this is not this is not at all what this study is doing this so is the pop- just <laughs> what the study is saying is this is no. not <laughs> <laughs> oh my okay. god i'm very badly i mean i'm no, definitely no. not a psychologist. we no, should but, cut all of this but, <laughs> no no it's um I'm, I'm joking but yeah it's it's definitely it's in in discourse it's a very it's a tricky thing to deal with like, i was just in general, thinking i think it's one of the things where you can't really say um like a strong rule you can't make a rule either direction of saying like you always have to listen to small groups who have claims or you always have to say like ah yeah it's no we don't care for it because we are the mainstream we are the majority um you have to like on a per group basis you have to figure out is it worth like do they have a legitimate claim and many of them do but there's all other like w- like anti-vax small groups they're also like in, in numbers they're comparable to other like mistreated minorities but there you can't say that they're they, the claims that they have are valid um, yeah i'm just thinking like i mean partially it's because we're now in pride month and I, i'm thinking more about this issue um but this idea of like as a minority it's very hard for people to get their voice heard unless they kind of scream and then they get told off because they're screaming and then they get screamed at yeah um i don't know it's yeah, it's 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 definitely problematic for for a discourse. But that's something I did want to segue into, which is, yeah, it is Pride Month, and just to note that on July the fifth there is LGBT STEM Day, so mm. celebrating and trying to further the the opportunities for LGBTQ people. I've heard it recently said as quilt bag. So if you um if you rearrange LGBTQI. I'm forgetting something. You a can, for for asexual. Yes, maybe. And then there's also a U which is undecided, or there's there's yeah. some variations. You can make the word quilt bag. <laughs> so I saw like one of my friends put this like quilt bag people. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you should check out. There's a website called prideinstem.org, and if you go um, onto their website, you can look to kind of this how how can I help? What can I do? And they have a whole list, um, a PDF which basically has a whole list of resources of things you should be aware of. So a lot of like good articles about how the the representation is still not great. And I mean, there was one study which showed that um, LGBT people are more likely to leave science um, than like others. Um, these kind of, these like, so good scientific facts, but also possibilities for action and discussions yep. of what the issues are, what can be done. So I think you can um, go and check that out. Yeah, that's and definitely very important because diversity is too often understood. Like diversity is already, at least in, in our field, not at the best level. And it's often only understood as the diversity between men and women. And it's often not thought about like the entire spectrum of the many different other things. Also like ethnic diversity is something that's often um, ignored. So they, they pride themselves with like whatever percentage of female leadership, but they they some people um, in the deciding positions they ignore these things of of uh, LGBTQIAU so quilt back in STEM. And I mean the thing is like 
we should be scientists, so we should be able to think about this shit logically. Yeah. And apart from generally just not being a horrible, awful human being, <laughs> if you <laughs> if you think that some people are for some reasons better than others, then you're just horrible. Please stop listening to this podcast and go the hell away. Um, apart from that, I mean, we have scientific evidence. There are studies that show that most systems are improved by having more diversity so the more different types of people different thought processes like whatever it is you get so more ethnicities more like different genders different like it's going to improve science so like apart from all of the other huge array of shit that you should be like paying attention to just to make sure that you're not the asshole who's on the wrong side of history <laughs> scientifically <laughs> Yeah, we know that this is a good thing. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah like really go and well check put. out their page um, and go, especially go to their toolkit. So it's really, if you go to the front page, there's then a how section and you can click on the toolkit and it has some, uh, like they have a Wikipedia editathon where they're going to try and um, encourage, like improve the visibility and representation of LGBTQ plus people. So make sure that some of those people who are getting ignored actually have Wikipedia pages. Um, they like, <laughs> Lots oh, this brings me to like completely like like German Wikipedia is just the worst in this <laughs> in this respect. Like there are all these studies looking at like the makeup of Wikipedia editors and who's actually in charge and power of oh, de deciding what's on there. And especially in Germany, it's really bad. We've it's activated just, one of your arms rants now. No, I'm I'm, I'm stopping <laughs> here. I'm just saying like yeah, once you figured out how to like make it better in science, please continue to also affect Wikipedia, especially the German one. It needs so much help. And we're not the best people to say this so we want to give you like pass you on to the resources of people who've put a lot of time clearly a lot of time yeah. and effort into it um so please go and look at that and just click on the page have a look at what you can do and then actually go and do it like yeah yeah cool um now i look kind of stupid with my fun <laughs> stuff we're going to save it for the next episode <laughs> no i mean then, no i'm monopolized go <laughs> the my fun stuff uh the first thing that i i looked at that I, I i came across is um the end of the age of dna or more the beginning of the age of proteins for paleontology pa paleoproteomics is the keyword here like old shit yeah so instead of like what people have been doing for a while is when they find fossils they they try to take dna samples from it and if they can recover some dna they uh, sequence it and from that they can build like um, phylogenetic trees and figure out relationships of the fossils that they find um but now people are able to do that with proteins as well and um there is a, a good um, article on, on nature is um, that sums up sort of the state of the art. Um, so they could, the, the first proteins that were recovered were from 1.8 million year old animal teeth and 3.8 million year old eggshells where they could recover proteins. So from and inside the teeth, I guess, like in the soft tissue. I, I guess so. Mm. Um, and they could, yeah, they could get uh, amino acid sequences and... Um, some proteins are so conserved that for those you can also build these phylogenetic trees just based on that one protein without knowing the underlying gene um, so they've been doing that and now they want to do that for homo erectus and a couple of other like early um, human species um, to figure out like to, to fill in some of the gap namely the, the, the biggest one there is homo floresiensis um, which is called the hobbit species okay. so this uh, that lived in Indonesia some 60,000 years ago and to this day it's not really clear how it fits into the lineage of human species um, and yeah so 
the the cool thing about it is that they actually able to do that first of all like if you ever work with protein you know like how difficult it can be even if you have an abundance of sample and these guys they have like the smallest traces of peptides that they can run in a mass spec um so what they're mostly using is collagen as their sort of marker protein that they can build these these trees on but there's also people doing these shotgun proteomics so that means that they try to get the entire proteome of their sample so not only like collagen but everything else that's on there um which is even crazier in terms of the amounts that they have and what they can pull up from it um but what you also know when you ever work with protein is so easy to contaminate your samples. <laughs> so, Seriously, getting keratin from people. <laughs> yes, that's that's the biggest <laughs> um, like critique or or risk that researchers see in this technology that they call Zoo MS um, because it comes from zoo archaeology, um, and then from mass spectrometry is that they yeah that they might measure the wrong things because proteins are very abundant and usually the ones like more recent proteins are more abundant than very old proteins in your sample so you have to work very cleanly and have a very precise setup to make sure that you don't just measure like what you had for lunch instead of like homo um what's the floresiensis samples but yeah i didn't know that that it's even possible so i i found that quite cool I also saw some stuff about um, single cell proteomics becoming a thing as well. So like single cell transcriptomics kind of makes sense because you have an amplification step. So even though you have like only the transcripts from a single cell, you can amplify it. And I saw now a couple of papers about proteomics, like single cell proteomics, which I haven't looked into. I don't know how they do it. It seems like magic to me, but obviously there's some sensitivity where we can now. Yeah. The next step. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It, uh, eventually, you just uh, need a droplet. You put it near a sample, and you have like the the CSI effect, where you know like, like the entire history of everything just right from this one speck of dust <laughs> that you put in your machine. I like the Prometheus thing, where they're like now to DNA mode, and they like just zoom in more and more, and then they like <laughs> actually see like A T G G G C A A A, and they like read out the DNA, and they're like, and then like they're reading across it, they're like, oh. Yes, it's a human. And it's like, you're reading like 50 base pairs. Like, why do you know it's human? It could be like a monkey. It could be a mouse. It could be a freaking a Arabidopsis for you. Know? I just rewatched The Matrix with the same thing where you just look at the lines of code and you're just like, oh, yeah, I see everything in there. Like, oh, we see like the city. We see the people. We see yeah. everything. Just like a few green characters falling down. It's, yeah. But there's lots of characters there at least. Like, I mean, they have like uh, kanji, like Japanese characters or Chinese yeah. characters like, mixed in. So there's at least like some... Yeah, you true. can imagine like a, a multifactorial, but it's not just like ATCG. Like, yeah, it, it's like, like <laughs> anyway, we criticize because we care. <laughs> I think that's the facts for today, right? Um, I mean, I have a cat fact. <gasps> if we want to end on a cat I fact. I think we should try to end every episode on a cat fact. Cool. Then I have a nice cat fact. Um, it's a very fun one, uh, which is that uh, cats kill 1.1 billion mammals in Australia oh, every year. Um, yeah. There has been a recent study where they looked in, at cat poo and figured out what they were eating. And then from that, did some calculations and estimations. Um, and they, they calculated that feral cats eat like the majority, 815 million mammals per year, escaped cats in cities, around 150 million, and pet cats that still live in homes but can go out eat 180 million. Good things about pet cats, they mostly kill in other invasive species like mice. Yay. Bad thing, the feral cats don't give a fuck. They eat everything and they kill. Um, and they just looked at mammals, but they also eat like reptiles and birds. And they're just mm. a massive da um, danger to the ecosystem. And in the study, they say cats are more dangerous to ecosystems than land clearing. 
so it's a massive issue there and we sort of knew it but i found it interesting to have like these numbers there like 1.1 billion just the mammals without counting the birds and the lizards and all the stuff that they also eat there's one like i think uh, a fact about the single most deadly animal is there was this one cat that belonged to a lighthouse keeper on a tiny (laughs) island in tasmania (laughs) and it just annihilated an entire species of birds like just one cat like roaming around and it's like these birds are stuck on an island and basically within 10 years it had done its job so i think we put we put a um a blog post about 1080 which is a synthetic poison which is derived from a natural plant product which in australia especially in the west coast of australia we now use to try to poison things like cats but also foxes rabbits like a lot of feral animals and i don't know if it was met very well with our audience because it's a little bit of a mean thing to be talking about deliberately killing animals but in this case like a little bit worth it and we are cat lovers guys yeah we are cat lovers but yeah don't if if you're in australia i actually actually also not in australia it's just like very easy to do these calculations because it's a sort of contained system it's very easy to say to to have the cat as an invasive species there Mm. while in europe we have the same problem we just cats are just not invasive here but also like feral and pet cats kill so many birds and there are some endangered bird species that are mostly endangered because of pet cats that hunt them and kill them yeah at least here i can think of it more as a circle of life whereas in australia it's like those cats don't belong there they shouldn't be there yeah and d- nothing in the ecosystem has prepared for it yeah and, and they they are wrecking havoc yeah wow happy note <laughs> uh, i think that's it for today guys um Please follow us on all of the channels on Instagram and on Facebook. We're at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. Please uh, rate us, subscribe to our podcast, give us five-star reviews, say nice things. But also, if you want us to change things, please suggest some comments. Yeah. Whenever you have cool things that we should talk about, send them our way or through any of the channels that we just mentioned. And our opening and closing music is from Caravana from Philip Gross. And see you next week. And next week on the podcast, we will be talking about old varieties of wheat and if they are actually better than new varieties. And apparently about gender issues as well. That's also a big topic. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>